The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ZWC. This episode features Jocelyn Bershik once again. She's the president and senior construction manager at Sundance Construction. And today we're discussing her experience bringing clean water to northern First Nations communities and the challenges that come with this. So let's jump right in. So you said something about First Nations were having their water contaminated with what was the uh, the chemical? Well, this is what's happening in, we look at Cashwan, we look at uh, Attawapiskat, we look at any of those northern communities, and the same thing is happening in both in northern Manitoba and in northwestern Ontario. And the problem we have is that many of the water treatment systems designed are relying on the chlorination of water, of treated water, in order to provide the safety factor. But the water chemistry in those areas, because of hydro development, because of the the Canadian Shield, um, there is a lot of methane in that water. So when you run that water through a filtration system, um, whether it's like a, a media bed filtration or a gravity filtration or a chemical pretreatment, those chemicals that you use have to go somewhere. But in the case of trihalomethanes, what happens is that when the water, the, the filtered water is treated with chlorine, it creates uh, the trihalomethanes. And trihalomethanes are carcinogens. Uh, we know that they're there. Engineering firms that designed the water treatment systems have all told the INAC, which is the Indigenous Northern um, Aboriginal uh, relations for for the federal government, they've all been told that the design that is going to be implemented is going to lead to the creation of trihalomethanes. And at that time, the federal government said, you know what, it is what it is, go with it. So then we started hearing stories about First Nations and members of those communities that were seeing uh, rashes, rashes when they use the water. Um, you see a strong odor coming off the water, coming through your shower, especially hot water. And I experienced it myself is that when I was working these communities and, and showering and bathing and everything else, um, my skin was burning. I had big, long rashes. My guys would go through heavy, heavy rashes. So what we did in order to, to deal with it is we stopped showering. We moved from a shower, we go to a bath. Um, instead of bathing and showering every day, now you're bathing and showering maybe every two to three days to minimize the amount of contact with the, the trihalomethanes. And when we go back home, we come out for our wraps, we work two weeks north, three weeks north, and come out for a week or two weeks, then the, the rashes would go away. And so you were seeing, seeing cases of eczema or what was thought to be eczema and other things that are happening in the, in the northern communities. And you see this in uh, northwestern Ontario. You see it around the uh, Lake of the Woods. And I'm, I'm looking at this and I can see based on the engineering and based on the science, well, it's pretty simple what's happening. Um, we need to change it up. 
and communities were were trying to find advocates. Universities like the University of Manitoba multiple times uh, brought in the evidence, showed what was going on. We know what's going on. And yet it's just, you know, it's like, well, can't do nothing about it. So there was no impetus either at the federal, provincial level to to deal with the issue. So the community members and workers coming into the area, they deal with it. You deal with it by not showering. So what happens when you don't shower? And what happens when you when you reduce that, you reduce hygiene? Well, what else do you introduce into the community? H. pylori. H. pylori is something that is said to spread within communities, especially northern communities, via poor hygiene. Well, oh my goodness. Well, now community members, they are bathing their children in bottled water and they're doing other things like that. And now oh the rates of H. pylori in Canada and Canadian First Nations is just as high or higher than you find in third world nations. It's typically a tropical poor hygiene disease that we see. But the H. pylori bacteria is rampant in First Nations. So what does that lead to? It leads to gastrointestinal cancers. Um, it leads to all types of things. And the way you treat it is you have to treat it with three rounds of multiple levels of antibiotics. And it may work, it may not work, but the end result of this, this crash introduction of multiple levels of antibiotics, now you have created a situation where the toolbox is empty and you are creating antibiotic resistance in those community members that have been treated, especially on a multiple basis. So then as the bacteria continues to grow within their gastrointestinal tract, now we're leading to more cases being opened up within Health Canada. Now you've got the cost, increased costs of these community members flying out to places like Winnipeg in order to get treated, the cost of housing them down here. It's like this great big long train wreck of consequence that nobody really wants to face up to. And it's all linked. It's all tied to each other. It's very no-nonsense. It's very uh, well-supported, but nobody deals with it. It's so frustrating that Justin Trudeau gives hundreds of millions of dollars overseas to other countries for whatever his pet projects are. And we have these very serious issues that I, I think could be fixed. How, how are we able to fix them? Just do a different type of water treatment that doesn't involve chlorine? Yeah. If you can't use chlorine, there are other things you can use. You can use UV injection. There is uh, a really good push into ultrasonics right now. So where you combine UV um, with um, ultrasonics. So you, what you're actually doing is using the the ultrasound in order to break up bacteria in the water, which thereby it destroys that bacteria. I think it has like a 99.9% kill rate. And then the UV destroys anything else that's free floating. So you kind of need a combination of both because UV is traditionally, they say it's like 99%, but if you don't clean your bulbs off the UV, then what'll happen is that you might get an 80% coverage. So you're still allowing, you know, 20% of virus and bacteria to get through. So you know, people look at treated water and they say, treated water is safe water. Well, treated water is safer water that comes with a consequence, that comes with some impact on environment. So my idea was, is that I see, just from the nature where I live, I see 
all the dumping that is happening into the to the river. So I look at the Red River and I look at all the communities that dump their treated waste into the the river and then discharges and then then emergency dumps and all that. So it's illegal, but people are doing it anyway. Um, let's put it this way: is that the city of Winnipeg dumps billions, billions of liters of of treated and untreated into the Red River system every year. They've been given multiple extensions by the provincial government to clean up their act. They're telling the provincial government they don't have the technology to deal with it and to improve their infrastructure. Well, what they've done, the city of Winnipeg, is they have decided they wanted to be greedy and they decided that they wanted to modernize systems. So what they did was they took all these outlying suburbs like uh, St. Andrews, East St. Paul, West St. Paul, and they decided to take them off of individual uh, field systems, which worked quite well, and instead put them on uh, tanks and then take everything to the sewage treatment plants. As capacity grew, and the technology didn't keep up with what was going on. It could, didn't keep up with demand. And because of the inability of the city of Winnipeg to continue to upgrade its existing infrastructure, what's happened is that they're, they're coming down to crunch time where they don't have the ability to treat all of this waste. So if you get a heavy rainwater event, and because they haven't fixed their infrastructure, stormwater gets into the sewer system, it overwhelms these treatment systems, and they do an emergency bypass, and they dump it all into the Red River that flows into Lake Winnipeg. All of those communities that border the Lake Winnipeg east and west side, they have a continuous discharge to the Lake Winnipeg um, if the system works well then the the discharge meets Canadian drinking water standards. If the system doesn't work well, they're dumping crap into the lake, which is why you see multiple communities along Lake Winnipeg that have to look at beach advisories because E. coli levels have skyrocketed for this particular day to day, you know, throughout the summer. So sometimes it's safe to swim in the water. Some days it's not safe to swim in the water. But all of this little cesspool of waste and chemical and pharmaceuticals makes its way into northern Manitoba into a pristine area that is goes up through Norway House and along the Nelson River through Thompson and then flows out the Nelson towards Churchill and out to Hudson's Bay. Wow so that's like right up to the Arctic. Yes. So where does where does it end up? It goes through all these communities. These communities aren't like communities down the south. <clears throat> They're in the Canadian Shield. They don't necessarily have a well. They pull their drinking water from the surface waters. They pull their drinking water from the Nelson River. And they have raw water intakes, or they have some of the lakes that come off here, like uh, Nelson House. It is uh, Paint Lake or that they, they pull out of, or Footprint Lake. So depending on the community you're in, in the north, you're pulling from surface water. So that means is that any contaminants that are in that water and build up in that water, this treatment system has to be able to deal with it. So, But engineers today, as they get lazy or they build within you know, like the cookie cutter, copy and paste specifications, pumping out their projects through public works and government services and INAC, they design to you know, a cookie cutter idea and not 
on the detailed testing and water chemistries that are present within that uh, ecosystem. And I saw this and I, I was trying to understand is that, okay, so if I'm building for Manitoba Hydro, Manitoba Hydro forced me to design a water treatment system that was based off the existing water chemistries that were within the wells we we're going to use. So um, I did the, the design build uh, projects for both um, the Kiwatnuk for the converter station, which is still in, in being used, and at the um, kiosk for the North Access Camp. I was involved in both projects. So I was able to build Manitoba Hydro Cadillac for a low cost, and we, we based the designs off of water chemistry. And we were able to give them a system that is clean, safe, and used minimal chemical. But then when I was looking at similar systems in First Nations, every time I went into a First Nation, I saw one more ego-based project, one more monstrosity of a design that was overpriced, overbuilt, inefficient, and pumped the chemical back into the, into the surface water. And so as more chemicals pumped into the surface waters, then it's affecting the ecosystems and just one great big huge mess after another. And I saw multiple systems. I've been in about 30 water treatment plants in the north. And every time I go in a water treatment plant or sewage treatment plant, I just kind of, you know, go in and pull up my hair. And some communities have the ability to really maintain their systems well and they've got a really good staff and they're able to do it. But in other communities I saw is that it didn't matter how talented the operator was you can only operate a garbage system for so long before it falls down around your ears. And that's what I was seeing. And now they're costing. So instead of spending, you know, $10,000 a year on, on chemicals to, to treat the water, they're now spending 60, 70, $80,000 in chemical. So they've exceeded the amount of chemical that the design was based on. Their systems are bogging down. They're falling apart. And who's suffering? It's the community. It's the ecosystem. The communities are running out of money because they're putting more money into maintenance and infrastructure. It's, it's not having budget that meets the actual needs of the community. And it's communities being faced to deal with ongoing maintenance issues that they can't afford to look after. And they can't afford to pay the salaries and they can't afford to, to pay for the, the components to keep the systems maintained and the physical cost of the hydroelectricity to run these plants that are now running at maybe 20% efficiency, it's, it's like a, a snowball. And whose job was it to, to make sure that the system that was installed was correct? The federal government. Because the federal government actually procures through INAC the project. They put out the bids for the design. They review the, the design bids with the First Nation, but most First Nations don't have the engineering capability within their own in-house systems to be able to, to vet the designs. They're told where the water treatment plant is going to go or the sewage treatment plant is going to go. They're going to be told that it's going to be, you know, this efficient and cost this much to run and that. But I've never seen a First Nation actually come back to me and say, is it, hey, our water treatment or sewage treatment system actually ran as designed, as intended at the costs that were forecasted. They're left paying for this huge albatross and they can't afford it.
So with the the Canadian Shield, are you not able to put wells in? Like, is is it because water doesn't really pool underneath That's, well, the ground? It's the cost of drilling. The cost of drilling into that and trying to hit an aquifer, like like you're drilling mm-hmm. through bedrock, you're drilling through the shield. Sometimes I've seen bids for a well in some of these developments. There might be a $100,000 well. Like, I mean, so when you're looking at the cost of a well, you know, at $100,000 or, you know, $150,000 to drill this and cap this and, and get it cased and things like that, you're dealing with a huge cost. The water treatment plant that I was I was building it just came faulty, and to pull the pump, I had to get a crane from Winnipeg to drive out. It took them thirty hours to move the crane from Winnipeg to wow. the to Kiwatnook. Right, so now we got to pull the the casing that's sitting above it, like the housing. So my crane. Um, had to get in so tight to this and I had a 75 ton crane which is like $500 an hour and he had to lift each section up and we had to brace each section as it comes comes up then we pull the pump then we put the new pump in my pump for that particular well was $7,560 this is insane okay so if you're listening from another country don't we have like the most fresh water in the world or like second or third most or something? We have so much fresh water and it's so difficult to get like to the part where you can drink it and have it safe for communities and stuff. Like even just me at my house, like the five grand for the well and then we had sulfur. And then what you're saying, like our pump was sitting down in mud and then we started pumping mud through our house. Like we had mud in our, our sinks and our toilets and like everywhere. So they came and lifted it up a bit out of the mud. And now I think we're going to have to pump it more. And then we hit sulfur. So then we had to put a $3,000 sulfur filter on. And then for three months of the year, we just don't have clean drinking water. So when it gets into the summer, when the well gets low again. So I've spent $8,000 and I still don't have clean drinking water for like the three months. But thank goodness I do for nine months. Like for nine months, it's like the best quality water ever, I think. Um, So it's crazy like that I'm having these little like micro problems, you know, with with water on this like small scale. And then you look at these communities, our First Nations communities, because this is a a cross Canada issue. Uh, I think everybody in Canada knows we're having trouble getting clean drinking water to First Nations. And I think all of us want to right? Like we want First Nations to have clean drinking water. Who wouldn't, right? But then when you start to realize how complicated it is, and then this goes back to the argument that I'm saying, don't demonize oil and gas because we're not ready to cut it off from the world yet. And it's these communities. I love natural gas. Yeah. I'm just worried that we're not going to develop enough. Um, And when oil and gas gets more expensive, so this is a great example with your crane, how expensive it was to drive 30 hours away. So like, how are you going to do this at a reasonable cost when you put all these like, you know, the carbon tax and the fuel tax and all these things start piling on it to make everything more and more and more expensive? It's hurting communities even more. So I'm very interested in hearing like the solutions. And I actually didn't realize it was this big of a problem. So when I think, okay, our First Nations don't have clean drinking water. Can't the government just go up and spend a few million dollars and just like put in a couple of wells or like a treatment plant so they can pull water from the river and then filter it clean and then give it to the communities. You know, it sounds like it's so much more challenging than that. 
It is challenging. Um, is it solvable? It is. Uh, the solution. The solution is to go back to, again, the concept of the communal First Nation living. So the idea is that not to get bigger in First Nations. Don't put these massive albatrosses in place without thinking it through. You got to break it down into smaller systems, smaller independent microsystems for each of the, the communities. Let's come up with systems that are that are at a lower cost and they're, they can operate efficiency, uh, more efficiently on a smaller scale. So I think you have to break it down in these communities. You have to give them smaller systems that, that house regions of the, the First Nations in a better way. Also between the Métis communities and the First Nation communities, um, there's another history here, and I don't think people realize this, is that you have to start sharing infrastructure. So because on a First Nation, a First Nation falls under the Indian Act, First Nations are directly under the authority of INAC, so the federal government. But because of the the way First Nations were set up and because of the definition of the Indian Act and what would, what was uh, considered to be an Indian person, what was considered not an Indian person, um, over historically what would happen is that if a First Nations woman, if she married off-reserve, she married off-reserve, if she were married a, a non-status man, she would be removed from the First Nation. She was no longer had status and she would be forced to go live off-reserve. And there are so many heartbreaking stories and my family experienced it where these women were escorted by fathers and uncles and grandfathers off-reserve because that was the re the the rules, you know, taken to the edge of the reserve and said, okay, you're on your own. You go live with your husband or go live with your partner. You're on your own. And traditionally, these areas, these First Nations, um, you had northern development. So you either had uh, Manitoba Hydro up there, or you had the Hudson's Bay Company, or you had other entities like Mines and Thompson. So then what would happen is that a non-status community would grow up right alongside the First Nation. And that community would have to build its own infrastructure. So there was no yeah. shared water treatment, no shared sewage treatment. So in all of these First Nation communities, infrastructure is doubled. Double, double, double everywhere. Because you have to build for both kind of racial communities? Is that... What's happening? That, no, that would no. The rule was is that the, with the federal government is that off reserve, it's not their responsibility, and they didn't put mm. in any agreements to share infrastructure. Yeah, ownership, right? Mm -hmm. You know, funding. They never worked through through this. So you look at every single community in Manitoba, Flin Flon. Well, Flinflon is started off as a non-status community. You look at the PAW, non-status community, right alongside the First Nation OCN. Uh, Thompson, Thompson is basically a non-status community um, surrounded by Nelson House, Split Lake, um, all these, these, these communities in and around this area. Um, you look at Norway House. Well, there's the community of Norway House and there's Norway House First Nation. Cross Lake, community of Cross Lake, non-status, buried in the heart of the First Nation community. Um, so you have a doubling of infrastructure 
everywhere and a separation everywhere. And when the laws changed, I think back in the, oh, I think it was in the early 90s where it changed and women under the Supreme Court was recognized that it was a discriminatory practice and that they would no longer uh, lose their status if they married off reserve. It started to, to fix some of the problem, but it created a, a whole host of problems after that for unintended consequences. So the long and short of it is that First Nation women, they got shafted. They got shafted in every way possible. So we have a blending of kind of like there's three separate distinct groups in Manitoba. We have status, reserve. We have non-status, living within Métis communities. And then we have the kind of like more that historical Métis community, which is the distinct but blended heritage and culture that was created within the the Métis world. So you, you have the three distinct groups that are all involved. So in Manitoba, they created a massive dog's breakfast. Again, they just didn't think it through. It was like these Métis communities started off as like little shanty camps and then grew into the communities they are today. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I really just... I don't think all this division is good for anyone. And now we see this with uh, Canada further bringing in immigrants of different groups, uh, which we've been doing the whole time, right? Um, like my area is Irish immigrant refugees escaping the potato famine in the 1840s, right? So we kind of yep. have this little group there. And uh, we're next to a First Nations reserve. Um, and then we're bringing in, you know, with the war in Syria, like we have a big community coming in from there. And uh, I just feel like the government just divides everybody up so much. I don't know how good it is. It just seems like dividing people up will cause more problems. I, I saw that. And, and so that was like one of the things, the questions that uh, happened when I started the, the housing development and when I, I actually made my first presentation uh, at public hearing here. So what happened was, is that we got all this pushback because not the pushback from council, but we got pushback from community members saying is that, oh, my goodness, you know, are are you creating a little urban reserve back here? You know, your maybe background, or are you creating this um, this little urban reserve here? And then another uh, thing we said is that, oh, based on what you're talking about, you know, you're probably going to be housing, um, you know, Syrian refugees, you're going to be doing this, you're going to do that. And I said, that's not what this is about. I said, we're not about creating any type of divided, distinct community. I said, we're going to develop a micro community that is based on the equality of people, the idea of privacy, of safety, of kind of like freedom to associate within this community. I don't care what background you're from. That was the idea that we're doing that because when I look at division and I look at the identity politics as a whole, it's a dark path. And Mm -hmm. We can't do that. And we we need to take our focus back to the healing of the rift. It's not a rift between Canadians and First Nations or or Indigenous. Though that rift is really, doesn't really exist. Uh, We have, you know, we've lived together for how many hundreds of years? 400, right? The the fur yeah. traders were coming in the 1600s, unless you go back to the Vikings who were here, what, like a thousand years ago or something in Lanzomet, exactly. Newfoundland? And 
First Nations, the First Nations culture, the First Nations idea uh, of culture is about acceptance. And it is about that idea of welcoming. The First Nations here in Manitoba and across, they welcomed, Chief Paguas welcomed the the uh, the groups coming across the European settlers, the the Red River settlers, he welcomed them here. He was forward thinking, and he was looking at the idea of of how do we share knowledge between the two cultures, Chief Peguis, and we're dealing with back in what 1876, 18 in this this time frame. He's looking at this, and he's saying is that I'm looking towards the future. And the, the future of all of our peoples, of all of our First Nations. So, yeah, I have to respect the idea that he knew that people's strength came from working with one another and incorporating into a community rather than division. And he, he demonstrated that throughout his entire lifetime in the Red River Valley. And I don't think people realize that the the treaties that were signed here in Manitoba, Treaty 1, the original treaty was done in a spirit of cooperation and of building on two different groups. And it was supposed to be done in partnership. Didn't come out uh, that way because of the introduction of the Indian Act and everything else. So the problem the First Nations are having is not between and the average Canadian and First Nations. The problem that First Nations have is the federal government's failure to act as a partner and rather to act in an authoritarian, dictatorial way. That's the problem that First Nations and Métis have with the federal government is that, you know, First Nations are like a war to the state. And it's really hard to have dignity when you're being force-fed what you can and can't do. So mm-hmm. First Nations, their constitutional teams usually tend to use every single tool in the toolbox via constitutional negotiations going all the way back. So I've actually got like this really cool experience where I've actually been able to sit down with First Nation constitutional teams in various communities like across lake and, and other places and been able to experience the fighting spirit of first nations as they battle using law battle using ethics and i think that is the coolest form of protest and fighting back that you can do because they absolutely epitomize their strength and kind of like that warrior path by utilizing tools like the Canadian Constitution and the treaties that were signed. Smart. It is forward thinking. And again, it's not it's not a problem with the First Nations and Canadian people or Indigenous and Canadian people. It is the battle between federal, provincial governments that aren't living up to their responsibilities under the Canadian Constitution and the treaties that they signed. Yes, choose love over hate and choose friendship over division. That was a uh, very informative episode. So thank you, Jocelyn. Thank you so much. That was Jocelyn Bershik. She's a president and senior construction manager at Sundance Construction. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.